Well, happy Easter, everybody. How y'all doing? If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff at CBC, and I could not be more thrilled to have you guys joining us for not only Easter, but the kickoff to our brand new Enough series. This series is predicated on the idea that we spend a lifetime trying to to be good enough, and we wrestle with that. We're going to talk about that today, but back last year, early last year, we began praying in anticipation for what we felt God was going to do in 2018, where he wanted us to go as a church. We prayed as staff and as pastors, as leaders, and we felt like God kept telling us over and over again that he wanted us to grow stronger. And so we are looking at how we grow stronger in our faith, how we grow stronger in our relationships with one another, stronger in our relationship with God. And part of what keeps us from growing stronger is a sense that we just won't ever be good enough. And I want to talk to you about that this morning. This is something that begins at a young age for us. I can remember being really young and having to take these different tests in school. Uh, Tests to declare kind of what my competencies were and what I was able to do. And so early on in school, there was a, a metric that was given. There was a bar that was set, a standard that determined whether or not I was going to be enough. And you work hard at being enough in school. <clears throat> you carry around this burden and every uh, so often you get a report card which tells you if you've achieved your outcome, your desired goal of being enough. A lot of you are probably like me in that at an early age you picked up some interests. I started playing music at a pretty young age and so you start music and different lessons and classes and you want to be good at music, especially if you're in school and uh, at home. If you're not good at music, your parents won't let you play anymore because it's really bad for them. And so you start learning music and you've got sheet music that you're bringing home and you might take private lessons and you've got this metric set up in, in, in competition band. You've got different chairs, first chair, second chair, third chair, and you're always working to be good enough, to, to be enough and, and meet that metric. And then from activities like this, a lot of us played sports. And we don't have to look very far to realize that there's a large metric when it comes to sports in our lives. We don't have to look much past our coach or our parents to the television where we've got our idols that set the bar high for us of what success and being good enough looks like in athletics. And so we invest a lot of our energies and our time and our resources burdened with the idea of being good enough with athletics. And then there comes a time where you realize that you're a part of something bigger than yourself. You're a part of a family. And then as you realize that you're a part of the family, it comes with the weight of responsibility and it starts to, to weigh you down. It becomes heavier and heavier, understanding that you're not only a son or a daughter or a, or a mother or a father, you are a husband or a wife, and you've got responsibilities that come with being a part of a family. And and I don't know your background, where you come from, or what that was like for you, but I know for me, this was one of the biggest burdens of my life. Because as a 16-year-old child, I was adopted into a home that already had four children. There was already an established birth order and, and a way of doing things. And I felt the constant pressure of being good enough in a family where growing up, I was never enough. And then comes college, and out of college, you work hard to find a job. 
a job that celebrates your accomplishments academically, but it comes with a tremendous amount of responsibilities and a burden that starts to weigh you down even more. And you have these reviews. Sometimes they are twice a year, other times they're once a year, but you've got these metrics. They're called numbers. They're called sales goals that drive you. You've got to see a certain number of people or uh, give a certain number of pitches. You've got to process a, a, a certain amount of paperwork. And there's a standard that's set for you that constantly reminds you of what good enough is. And you work tirelessly to be good enough. And with your job, you start accruing this thing called money. If you've graduated from college, that takes a while. But you've got finances that begin to weigh you down. And not just finances by way of responsibility, but finances by way of desires. We live in a consumeristic culture. And we see everybody around us and all that they have and and we think of how great it is that they have it. And so we try to have a good enough house and a, a good enough car and a good enough pension and good enough retirement and save a good enough amount of money for our kids. Or if you're like me, have a good enough amount of kids. You don't have to save anything because they'll take care of you. <laughs> money begins to weigh us down. And we're constantly reminded of whether we've become good enough financially by uh, our financial statements and whether we become good enough financially by our retirement, our 401k, the earnings, the profit and loss statements. Then along the way, some of us decide that we want to learn something new. We've got other responsibilities, things that we need to be a part of when it comes to our family and our everyday life. And So we take up something crazy like cooking. Uh, and, and we start to look at, at this and we understand that there's good food and bad food, guacamole being the latter. <laughs> and we work hard to be good at our craft. None of us sets out to start a, a hobby or an interest with the desire of being really bad at it. I've never once heard anybody say, I want to be really bad at backgammon or at cribbage or at cooking. If your wife has ever told you she wants to be really, really bad at cooking, she's just trying to get out of making you food. We work hard to be good at this. And then finally, let's talk about faith. We realize that we, 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 we want to have something more. There's something greater than us, bigger than us. And faith weighs us down. So we go through the process of religion. We go to religion classes. We get confirmed. We learn all the do's and the don'ts, the insides and the outsides. And you stand there and it begins over time to weigh on you. And it becomes heavier and heavier. And the burden becomes more greater than it was before. The burden of trying to be good enough until you finally realize, enough! You're not going to be good enough. In fact, I would argue that we were never created to be good enough. We were created by the one who is enough, who is our source of all life. And if you're here this morning and you feel like you're standing in the middle of the remnants of your life, you see bits and pieces of what you've worked so hard to accomplish. You see fragments of your marriage. You see pieces of your finances, and you, you see a little bit of your work and the academics, everything that you've worked so hard to accomplish, you're standing in the middle of it, and you just feel broken. You feel like you've done everything you can do to be good enough, but you're still not enough. I am so glad that you are here this morning. You are not here by mistake. You are here as a divine appointment by the author and the perfecter of life who is enough. And this morning, by the time we're finished, not only are we going to address this false understanding and idea that we have to somehow be good enough, 
we are going to recognize and have an opportunity to encounter the one who is enough. Let me invite you to grab your Bible. As you pull out your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. John is a part of a collection of books known as the Gospels. It's about five-eighths of the way through your Bible. You'll see four names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have what you call the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are a part of the Synoptic Gospels. In other words, the account of Jesus' life and ministry, the gospel message of salvation, recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, draw a lot of similarities and parallels. You can follow a, a timeline, an order of events, and you can see how those three gospels line up very well with one another. The Gospel of John records the same life events and miraculous activities of the other gospels, but in a very unique way. John writes and he's going to introduce what we now have identified as seven discourses or seven conversations and seven signs or miracles. John writes the way that he does because he is addressing not only early adopters of the faith, but he recognizes that a large majority of his audience are people who have yet to encounter Jesus or who have yet to step into faith. And so he writes in a way so as to say, hey, look, Jesus is who he says he is, and here are the examples. Here's the facts. Here's the data. Here's the statistics behind it. Today, we're going to read about a very first conversation that John records. Jesus is growing in notoriety. He's growing in, in popularity. There's a lot of skepticism about who he is and what he's about, what he's come to do. I mean, here's this humble guy, the, the, the seemingly the, 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 the child of a carpenter from Nazareth. And people are coming around, though, because they see the first miracle, something crazy. There's a party going on and a wedding. And we heard about this dude turning water to wine. We want a friend like that. And so people start coming in droves to see Jesus and... The Bible says that there are many more miraculous signs and wonders that there's not enough room to record in scriptures. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that Jesus had begun other miracles as well and other teachings. Jesus was going, even from an early age, you see it at the age of just 11, 12, 13, that Jesus is in the synagogue and he's sitting with the religious elite and he's having conversations about eternity and the kingdom of God and the things of God. Jesus has grown in reputation as a really gifted teacher. There's a man, and his name is Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a, a feared, revered, and respected man of religion and rules. Nicodemus, at a very early age, would have come up under a rabbi, and he would have studied most of his adolescent and youth and even into early adulthood life, memorizing what we know as the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Not just memorizing the concepts or the themes, but he would have memorized verbatim, word for word, in the original language. A part of what Nicodemus would have been responsible for memorizing were 613 laws. 613 do's and don'ts. 613 regulations. And Nicodemus, as he's growing in knowledge, as he's growing through academia 
obviously shows himself to be a respected student and he works his way politically and he works his way relationally where his reputation is, is such that they invite him in to be in a Pharisee. So now he is an elite religious leader. As a Pharisee, he's responsible for upholding the law. He's responsible for keeping the traditions and the celebrations and making sure that others were the same. Apparently, he's really good at that as well, and he becomes a, an even more respected member of society and community, and eventually, he is invited into being a part of what we call the Sanhedrin. Now, this is a collection of 71 within the greater Sanhedrin that consists of both the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sanhedrin acted as judges. They were responsible for not only knowing, not only honoring, but they were responsible for judging others based on their actions. Were they good enough? Did they do enough good? Did they stay away from doing enough bad? Did they honor the 613 laws, the 613 rules and regulations? He's a respected teacher. He's very gifted in communicating the regulations that we're responsible for. And he's very uh, intentional about how they keep them. Nicodemus hears through the crowd that Jesus is coming. And fearing for his reputation, Jesus can't go by the daylight because if he does, well, the Pharisees who, though they understood Jesus as being a gifted teacher, weren't willing to acknowledge that he could be the Messiah, that he could be the promised one prophesied about. And, and what Jesus was beginning to teach was juxtaposed to everything that they had spent their entire lives learning to be about. Religious rules and regulations and systems and the law and structure and discipline and judging. Jesus steps onto the scene with a message of hope and love and freedom. And he's using signs and miracles to, to, to solidify and to confirm, to drive home what he's all about. So Nicodemus is curious about this man named Jesus and fearing for his reputation because he's worked so hard to be good enough in community. He's going to go with the disguise of night. Nicodemus is going to go by the shadows of the night. And he's going to find Jesus. When he finds Jesus, he has this very curious conversation. And one would think you would start off with a question or, hey, how you doing? But Nicodemus starts and he says, hey, listen, Jesus, I've heard about you. I've heard about your teachings. And we know that you must be from God. You're a rabbi and you're a good teacher, but we know that God must be using you because of what you teach. You see, Jesus had not come up in academia like Nicodemus or the other Pharisees had, and yet Jesus was teaching these profound truths that were enlightening hearts and minds through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Nicodemus realizes you're not studied, you're not learned, yet you preach with such authority and such integrity that what you say is not only good, but it must be from God. And, and then he looks and he says, we also know that the signs and the wonders that you're doing, these also must be of God. What he won't do is he won't profess Jesus as Lord or suggest that he's the Messiah in any way. He, he might be saying you're a good teacher or you might even be a prophet like the prophets before you, but... I just have to know, what are you about? We're going to pick up in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Jesus has a very interesting response to Jesus initiating this conversation. In verse 3, Jesus replied, and he's going to do so three different times. I want you to catch what we're about to read, and I'm going to talk about why. He says, I tell you the truth. 
unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Can we all agree that an initial conversation at Scooter's, that it might be a little inappropriate and definitely awkward to say, hey, how you doing? My name is Andrew. Uh, Have you considered being born again? To the outside observer, they have no idea what I just said. They think it's weird. Nicodemus thought it was weird. We're going to get to that. But what I want us to see is that what Jesus says is predicated on the word truth. He's going to actually use this word truth or assure three different times as he starts each one of his three significant sentences. Why is this important for us, church? Because Nicodemus had prided himself on truth. He had prided himself on being good enough and knowing enough and upholding enough and holding others to the same set of standards that was based on what he practiced as truth. What Jesus says is, I've got a, trump, uh, I've got a truth that's going to trump your truth. That what I share is much more than what you've experienced. What I share is the, is the real truth. And listen to Nicodemus. Can we, I think we can all see that this makes sense. Verse 4. After being told you've got to be born again. Nicodemus says, wait a minute. What do you mean? Exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Nicodemus has the same problem that most, if not all of us, have. In that we view our faith through our own experiences and through our own purview. How do I know that Nicodemus is is seeing what Jesus is saying from his own perspective? Because listen to what he says. In order to have climbed the ranks socially, academically, religiously to the ranks of being a part of the Sanhedrin, he would have been experienced in life. Nicodemus would have been an older man. And he looks at Jesus, Jesus, and he says, wait a minute, how is it possible that an old man like me is going to climb back up in my mother's womb and be reborn? That is freaky. That makes no sense. Nicodemus has seen things with a limited perspective based on his own experiences of trying to be good enough. Church, I wonder how many of us see God through a limited experience and perspective based on what we've been about, based on who we are, based on what we've learned. How many of us see God and it's so short-sighted? We try to put God in a box that we're comfortable with when there's so much more to God. Nicodemus says, Jesus, I don't think you understand. I'm an old man. I can't be reborn. I've been born once. And Jesus replied, verse 5, I assure you, there it is again, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. This is both a physical and now a supernatural birth. Nicodemus, humans can reproduce only human life. But the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again because the wind blows wherever it wants just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Jesus addresses Nicodemus' concern. He said, Nicodemus, there is a water birth. This is a physical birth. It's the physical manifestation of a child entering the earth where a woman's water will break, which is uh, signifying that she is now in labor and she is going to have a child. There's a process. But Nicodemus, there's so much more than that. There is a spiritual rebirth. There's a spiritual rebirth where you are going to be flooded with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will indwell you. The Holy Spirit will be your counselor. He will be your comforter. He will be your guide. He will be your leader. He will be your interpreter. He will help direct you. 
Nicodemus, you only understand from your limited experience that human life can reproduce human life. But the, the spiritual life gives birth to spiritual life. And Nicodemus, just because you don't understand it, it doesn't make it not real. Just because you've worked really hard to be smart enough and good enough and do enough that you don't get this piece of it, it doesn't mean that it's not reality. Nicodemus, you, you understand that the wind is there. You feel it on your flesh. You hear it in the trees. You can see the effects of the wind when the wind blows, but you don't know when it's coming or where it's going. And it's the same way with the Holy Spirit. Imagine Nicodemus. He is learned. He is a leader. He is responsible for so much. And listen to his response. It seems incredibly reasonable to me. Verse 9. How are these things possible? Jesus, I've worked my entire life to obtain knowledge and to be good enough to know the rules and the regulations, the standards that God has put in place so that I can do enough and be good enough. I've climbed the corporate ladder. I've climbed the social ladder. And I am not just a Pharisee, but I am a part of the ruling body. I am a judge. Jesus, I am responsible for telling others and instructing others and judging others based on what they do. And if it's good enough, how, what are you saying to me? This just messes with Nicodemus. It jacks him all up, shakes him all around. And he doesn't know what to do with it. He can't get a grasp on it or he won't choose to listen. Because listening means that I have to identify that everything that I've done to be good enough is null and void. How many of us are so filled with pride that we've pulled up our bootstraps our entire life to be good enough that coming to Jesus seems like a crutch at best? I've worked really hard to be good enough academically, athletically, socially, financially, within my family, and you're telling me that I don't have to be good enough because God is enough? Nicodemus is irritated. He's looking at the law, and he says, Jesus, I'm, I know the law. I'm about the law. I've studied the law. I'm learned. I, 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 in fact, I'm responsible for upholding the law. And Jesus, Jesus is about to flip the switch on him, and what he's going to do is he's going to paint the picture. Nicodemus has a wrong view of the law. You see, the law from the beginning in Abram's case, when God encounters Abram, he says, look, Abram, I'm calling you to leave your, your family and, and to go where I'm going to lead you. And I'm going to walk among you. I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be my people. And together, we're going to be in this relationship. We're going to reconcile. I'm going to reconcile you back unto me because the big meta narrative throughout scripture from Genesis to Revelation is reconciliation. That we are not only to be reconciled to God, but we are to reconcile with one another. And, and, and as such, I'm going to give you these laws, these 613 laws, but these laws are not to just serve as a set of do's and don'ts, as a, as a list of what you should or shouldn't do so that you can try or try not to be good enough. The law in its original intent was designed for us to know the heart of God, what pleases God, what drives God, what makes God tick, what, what, what pleases God, and what makes God mad. The law was set in there so that we would know God. Not so we could try to be good enough. And Nicodemus doesn't know how to handle this. And look at Jesus' reply in verse 10. Nicodemus. He plays to his social standing and the hard work. He says, you're a respected Jewish teacher. And yet you don't understand these things. 
I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen. Now listen, Jesus changes here. He moves from singular to plural. And he does so very intentionally. Remember, Nicodemus is a part of the Sanhedrin. Remember, Nicodemus is a judge. And for anything to be admissible in the court, for anything to be admissible as a testimony, you had to have at least two or more witnesses. Therefore, you could not come on your own word. You had to come with the accounts of witnesses that saw the same thing and experienced the same thing that would vouch for you. And it had to be multiple. So when Jesus says to Nicodemus, listen, you're a religious leader and you you don't even understand these teachings. We come to you. He's He's now no longer saying, just take my word for it. He's saying, I've got apostles that I've called, and there are countless people around that have seen these miracles, these signs, these wonders. Not only that, but I am, on the, I am under the authority and the account of the, the, the host of witnesses being God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus, don't take my word for it, he says. We tell you that what we know and have seen, and yet you don't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven. This is why we celebrate what we know in the Christian calendar as Christmas. We celebrate God making a way where there is no other way. Giving us the ultimate gift, the final blood sacrifice, the final atonement for our sins. Verse 14, it says, and Moses, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. I love how intentional and how compassionate Jesus is with Nicodemus. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad I'm not Jesus because I would have just been like, have you ever seen the movie um, uh, Hitch? Where Will Smith is teaching him how to date and, 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 and Kevin is starting to dance. He does, and Will Smith just looks at him and just says, Psh! just slaps him. Says, Don't ever do that. I would just slap him. Nicodemus, Psh! you're just stupid. But Jesus plays to his knowledge. Jesus is, a, is, is, is very aware of his culture and context. And he knows that Nicodemus prides himself on knowledge. And he knows that Nicodemus knows the Torah. He knows the Torah perhaps better than any other. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. He knows them verbatim, word for word. And Jesus quotes from Numbers 21.9. The account of Moses leading the Israelites in circles, literally, church, in circles for over 40 years. The promised land's in sight. But because of their grumbling and complaining against God and against Moses and his leadership, Because of their blatant sin and disregard for God or the heart of God, God gives them rules and regulations so that they would identify with the heart of God. They even agree to a covenant. Moses is up on the side of a mountain and they come into a mutual relationship, a covenant where they celebrate with a meal and uh, and an offering to God. Because of their blatant disrespect and disregard and disinteresting the heart of God, God sends a plague of poisonous snakes amongst the Israelites. And it's so that every time Uh, an Israelite is bitten by one of these poisonous snakes, they have but moments until their death. But God in his humanity, God in his his infinite love of humanity rather, and in his infinite wisdom and his desire to reconcile all people unto himself, God makes a way for the Israelites to experience healing, salvation from this impending death from the bite. So he tells Moses, I want you to erect a bronze statue, Moses, of the same kind of serpent, the same kind of snake that has bitten you and has inflicted you with this death bite. 
And every time someone is bitten and you lift up this, this snake, Moses, and if they will look up to the snake and believe that God will heal them, I will heal them. Jesus meets Nicodemus where he's at. He doesn't drag him to where he wants him to be. He meets him where he's at and he speaks the language he understands. That is the God I serve. He meets each one of us where we're at. But he loves us so much that he's not willing to leave us there. He speaks our language. He speaks to our circumstances. He speaks to our situations. He has empathy and compassion. He's broken for us. John 13, 35, it says, Jesus wept at the loss of a loved one, one of his closest friends who died. Jesus was broken over it. Jesus meets us where we're at and he feels where we're at. He didn't condemn Nicodemus. He didn't slap Nicodemus and tell him he's stupid. He says, Nicodemus, you even know this stuff. Nicodemus, you know this. Nicodemus, you know this. And just like the snake is lifted up and you look so that everyone, Jesus, must, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone believes in him will have eternal life. I need to, I need to uh, clarify something. Uh, a lot of people have said that this is actually takes place when Jesus is hung on the cross and he's lifted up. The problem is Jesus was entirely man in that moment and he surrendered his life. He gave up all authority. He said, Father, I would that you take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And as he lays on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he'll cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And finally, into your hands I commit my soul. And he'll breathe his last breath. Jesus is lifeless on that cross. So it couldn't be that Jesus can breathe life into us in that moment when he's lifeless. Instead, I want to introduce to you Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't come. But while you're here, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus is the disciples, the apostles, the appointed ones are standing there as ambassadors, as spokespeople who have just received their marching orders. Jesus is ascended into heaven. And they stand there staring at the sky and angels appear and they say, hey, men of Galilee, what are you doing? Your Savior gave you marching orders. Quit standing around staring at the clouds. That is, in fact, what Jesus means when he says the Son of Man must be lifted up so that anybody who looks up and believes in him will be saved. It's the ascension. When we look up as a sign of surrender and adoration and believe, we experience salvation, just like the Israelites in their death experienced salvation from the venomous snake bites. But he doesn't stop there. In what has become quite possibly the most popular Super Bowl passage of Scripture. And I would argue maybe the most prolific passage of Scripture. John 3.16, for God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son to the world not to judge the world. Here he's talking to a judge and he's saying, I didn't come to judge but to save the world through him. Church, we cannot miss this. This is the first time that it is introduced to us 
that it is introduced to humanity that God's justice and his love and his salvation is not just for his elect, the Israelites, the chosen, like, like Nicodemus was, but that his love was for everyone, that he loves every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, those who were religious, religious elite and those who would never be enough. He loves them all, male, female, slave, free, rich, poor. He loves us all in our broken state. When we stand there and we recognize that we have worked tirelessly to be good enough and we collapse under the pressure of the weight of being good enough, God stares down and he says, I love you. You're not good enough and I love you and I'm making a way where there is no other way. So that we don't have to sit here and trying to collect these pieces and just try to do it over again, try to be good enough again. And he goes on in verse 18 through 21. He says, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anybody who doesn't believe in him, now he's talking to Nicodemus. And he said three times before this, I tell you the truth, I assure you, I assure you. So now he's talking about truth and believing. Anybody who does not believe in him has already been judged. Nicodemus, you're already being judged in your, in your disbelief. You're already being held accountable because of your actions. He says, anyone who doesn't believe is, is already judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world. As we continue to read this, I want to introduce to you that Jesus will call himself the light of the world that penetrates darkness and reveals all things. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light. They loved their junk more than their Jesus. How many of you this morning love your junk? You love trying to be good enough and you love your junk more than you love Jesus. He said they love their junk more than Jesus for their actions were evil. Verse 20, all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. I wonder how many of us are living in fear and that's what's driving us away from Jesus. I cannot encourage you enough to come back next week. I've got a message that I wanted to preach today that I'm going to preach next week. I could not be more excited about it. We're going to be dealing with the effects of excuses. And one of the excuses is fear. Those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. What does God want? Does God want you to come down here? Do you read anywhere that God wants you to try to pick everything up and make sense of your life again? Do you, do you read that God is, is concerned with you being good enough and that you gave it a good college try and it didn't work out and so he wants you to go back to the drawing board and, and keep trying? Do you read that God wants you just to, to keep going back to school and, and trying to work harder and be harder and, and here you are and then again, you by your own volition, uh, you take on the weight of the world again. Where do you see in scripture that God wants you to try to be good enough? It is the impossible task. It is worse than the song that never ends. Nowhere, nowhere in scripture do we read that the hope of the world is in us trying to be good enough. I've got really bad news for you this morning. If you're here and you're hearing my voice, You're not good enough. You're not good enough to save yourself. 
You're not good enough to save anybody. If you're here this morning and you're hearing my voice, I've got the greatest news that you'll ever hear. Enough is enough. You don't have to be good enough because God is enough. Hey, you can clap for that. You can clap for that. Over 2,000 years ago, God heard the cries of humanity after 400 years of silence. Of allowing people to live in a system of rules and regulations where they tried to be good enough. And with his created purpose in mind, his desired intention of reconciling all of us unto himself, he realizes that he had in covenant created a a, a temporary band-aid known as the blood sacrifice or the blood atonement to try to cover our sins and that every year we would make the pilgrimage to the holy city and for seven days we would worship there were various festivals and celebrations and rituals but this one known as the Passover required a, a blood sacrifice and so God made a way through the best version of a lamb that they could find or buy. For those who couldn't afford a lamb, there were some options, but families and individuals would take these sacrifices, these offerings to the Levites, the priests, and ultimately to the high priest where there they would bloodlet this animal. They would parse it out and they would use it as a burnt offering, as a sacrifice to God, and the high priest then would take almost as though it were a collection, a bowl of sins for the community at large, and they would tie a, a rope around his waist, and he would enter into what is known as the Holy of Holies. And people from everywhere would, would beg the high priest to intercede on his behalf. Would you please ask God to forgive me? Would you please ask God to show mercy? I'm not good enough. I messed up, and, and I need God to forgive me. And they would stand back and they would wait and watch and wonder because if this high priest didn't get it right or if this high priest, uh, for whatever reason, God was not pleased with the sacrifice in that moment, he wouldn't live to talk about it. But if he came out unscathed, then they, they took that as God has forgiven them. And so they had to go through an intermediate, they had to go through a high priest, somebody who was, who, who was interceding on their behalf. God saw the hurt in the people and he desires to reconcile us unto himself and so he gave us the final blood sacrifice in human form, Jesus, his one and only son, born of a virgin Mary. Coming up in the humble town of Nazareth as a physical carpenter's son, he, he would live life and he would, he would celebrate and he would worship God and knowing full well his created purpose and he would get to the place where he's led out to the wilderness and he's tempted for 40 days. He fasts for 40 days. He relies on God for 40 days and it's there that he's prepared for the ministry. He's baptized and as he's baptized, he begins his public ministry, very public ministry. And his public ministry 
His ministry of meeting people's needs where they're at. People who tried to be good enough but were never good enough. God meets them and he steps into their circumstance. He doesn't step around them. He doesn't step over them. He steps into their circumstance and he says, you don't have to be good enough because I am enough. I am the light of the world and in me there is no darkness. Your sin is going to be canceled out. Go and sin no more. Jesus changes radically a culture and a community. And because of that change, people live out that change and it changes the world, the landscape of the world. But Jesus will eventually be led to the place where he will be put to death in the most public capital punishment ever recorded. The only sinless man to die the most wretched, sinful death. He will go to six different trials, three civic and three religious, and he will be lied about, he'll be blasphemed against, he'll be spit on, he'll be mocked, he'll be beaten, he'll be pierced, he'll have his flesh ripped from his body, never once defending himself, never once calling down a host of angels because in the garden of Gethsemane he said, Father, I wish that you would take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours, align my desire with your will, God, and I know it's your will to reconcile all people unto yourself, and if this is what you need to do, then do it, God. Because they'll never be good enough. But if this is a way to make right, to make them righteous, then I'm all in. Jesus would attempt to carry that cross to Golgotha and falling under the weight. Simon of Cyrene will pick up that cross and collectively large crowds gathered around mocking Jesus in anger. Spitting at him, Jesus will be led away and he'll be bound to this cross. And he'll have nails pierce his wrists and his feet and and he'll, he'll, be, he'll be led up and, and, and hoisted up and the big thud of the ground where Jesus' body just whips down. And on that cross, he'll breathe his last breath and as they lower him down, they'll recognize that he's lifeless and they'll go and they'll get a borrowed tomb and they'll ask, look, the Sabbath is coming, but do you mind if we wrap him in burial cloths and at least begin the, 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 the memorial processions and They'll wrap Jesus in burial linens and they'll begin to anoint his body. This is customary. The embalming process. Then in this borrowed tomb, they will take a 2,000 pound stone and they will put it in front of the entrance so that no one could tamper with Jesus' body. And there they will put armed guards on watch so that no one could come up to the tomb and tamper with it. But on the third day, Mary will run. She'll run to her Savior. Not sure what just happened, why he died, where the promise is, the fulfillment, but she'll go. She'll go faithfully and obediently, and when she gets there, she'll see that the tomb is rolled away, and she'll peer in, and she'll see nobody, that the tomb is empty. And she'll encounter Jesus again, and Jesus will say, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And she'll say, what have you done with them? And all he does is utter her name, Mary. Because of the relationship that she has with Jesus, she knows the sound of his voice at the call of her name. She turns to the Savior. And he says, I've got work for you to do. Go back and you tell everybody what you've seen, that I'm alive. I have conquered death. I didn't just conquer death. I flat out kicked it in the teeth. I conquered death so that you could have life. I am the final blood atonement, the final sacrifice. You don't ever have to be worried about being good enough again because I am enough. And if in the same way Moses lifted the bronze scepter up and the Israelites who were stricken with poisonous snake bites would be healed from their imminent death, Jesus has been lifted up, ascended on high, 
And if we would just look up and believe, put our trust in him. And right, if we would just be honest, God, I'm not enough. I'm tired of trying to be good enough. I'm tired, tired of trying to do enough. I'm tired of trying to say that enough. I just, I'm tired of being enough. Then God, if you'll allow him to, will be enough in your life. Friends, God will be enough in your marriage. God will be enough in your finances. God will be enough in your physical bodies. God will be enough in your broken relationships. God will be enough in what you see in the mirror and how you see yourself. If you will put your trust in Jesus Christ, today will be unlike any other day in the history of your life. It's more than just a Christian holiday. It's the day that we celebrate that you don't have to be enough because God and his love and his desire for reconciliation made a way where there's no other way and he is enough. Friends, I invite you to stand to your feet. I want to pray with you. Many of you are here this morning in recognition of Easter because of what Jesus has done. And my prayer for you is that what God did through the presentation of his word, and I truly believe this was all God. This was, uh, today's message was actually the third iteration in 12 hours, just so you know. It could only be from God. If you would receive what God had to share for, for you today and, and you know that you're a fully devoted follower of Jesus, can I encourage you to let this be a reminder to not slip back into the ways of the world where you try to be enough again? Just don't, just don't go there. It's only going to leave you broken and empty and disappointed, held down by the weight of, the, of your expectations and expectations around you. Let this be a reminder that you don't have to be good enough because God's enough. Now, that's not an excuse to not work it honoring God. That's why we did 12 weeks of spiritual disciplines. I'd argue that because God is enough, you want to do what you can to honor him, love him, surrender your life fully to him. And so I want to talk to you this morning who are here because you wanted to honor a family member. Uh, Because you heard that there's this crazy preacher and now you know it's true. Because you heard that there's free photos going on and, I, and, and I'm wearing a tie this morning because my wife said you're wearing a tie and after service we're going to go take pictures my wife and my kids and we're going to celebrate it's a gift from us to you can I just encourage you as soon as we're done go out those double doors my right your left and just take a right make a left it's right there we're going to give you photos and I think we're going to put them up online you can tag yourself you can download them you can use it as your Christmas card you're welcome you can do it individually you can do it with a friend you can do it in a box. You can do it with a fox. <laughs> I really need to start preaching from notes. Alex, Alex can't even sing anymore because I just said that. I'm sorry, man. Oh, Father, forgive me for I have ADD. If you're here this morning and you have been working your entire life to be good enough and you're tired of it, you said enough is enough, might I offer you an opportunity to look up into the heavens, declare that Jesus is the Lord, and surrender your life to him. This morning is your moment of reckoning.
This is your moment of reconciliation. This is the moment where you receive what God did over 2,000 years ago by giving us his son so that we could have life. I want to encourage you not to leave this place this morning, not to leave uh, the, the host of witnesses that want to celebrate and, 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 and love on you with you. If this morning you would say, Pastor, I know, like I know, like I know that I am done running this rat race. I know that I'm not going to ever be good enough and I'm tired of trying to be good enough. I want God to be my enough and you want to surrender your life to Jesus you want to declare Jesus as Lord in your life that you're no longer your Savior because you can't save anybody, let alone yourself, but that you want Jesus to be your Savior. I have a gift for you and that I am going to pray with you and for you. And all you simply need to do is respond in your heart. Believe it. Respond. Accept this invitation and begin to live out the freedom that comes from your salvation. And then you put it on your calendar to be back here next week as we continue to learn the power of God being enough. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to invite you to do something that is more for me than you. It's not super spiritual. God already knows your heart. God already knows your thoughts. He knows your behaviors. He knows your ways. And so what I'm asking you to do is if you this morning would say, Pastor, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I'm going to invite you to raise your hand so that I can pray with you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, this morning, if you would declare that you want to give your life to Jesus, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Amen. I see that hand. Amen. Amen. I see that hand. Amen. I see that hand. Hold it up. I see that hand. Amen. I see that hand back there. Amen. I see that hand. Amen. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning and they have surrendered their life to you before today and they're on this journey of faith learning to surrender every day by the, trans, by, by the transforming of their lives and the renewing of their minds to totally surrender everything to you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would use today as a reminder for them that they don't have to be good enough because you are God and you are enough. Lord, I counted at least seven hands who went up and I couldn't see a lot more. But Father, for those who just put their hands up, you know their hearts and those who, who made this commitment today. Here's my prayer. Father, we are sinful. We are fallen. We are broken. We have tried to do it on our own long enough. We recognize that you are God, creator, author, and perfecter of life. And that in your love, you made a way where there's no other way possible. Jesus, we look up to the heavens and we surrender our life to you. Believing in our heart and confessing with our mouths that you are God. And I pray today that you would forgive us of our sins. I pray today that you would meet us where we're at and take us where you want us to go. Align our desires with your will. Father, I pray that we would no longer try to be enough. But we would live in the fact that you are enough. In the mighty and the powerful in the resurrecting name of Jesus we pray.